You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. another episode of the midweek podcast and today we are hopping ahead quite a bit because as we've gone out through previous episodes we've actually we've jumped around and and kind of covered a few things so some of the chapters that we would be getting into after Sodom and Gomorrah we've actually already gotten into them so we're not going to do that right now starting with uh chapter 20 Abraham and Abimelech uh, this is where Abraham kind of lies about uh, uh, his wife and says, like, this is my sister. And Abimelech takes his so-called sister to be his own wife. But then God gives Abimelech a dream. and He's like, no, that's 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 Abraham's wife. You can't sleep with her. And I've made it so that you wouldn't sleep with her. And now you need to give him back. Otherwise, you are going to have uh, uh, all kinds of judgment poured out on you. Uh, if you know that story, uh, then you already know it. But we also already covered it on May 8th in our episode, A Trilogy of Half Lies. Because Abraham tells this lie several times, and then his son tells the lie as well. Um, which at this point is just hilarious because they're so old. But Abraham's like, everyone will think that my wife's so beautiful and... And try to steal her. It's like, dude, your wife is super old at this point. Uh, so maybe stop being like so freaked out about that. But nonetheless, uh, we've already covered all that. Let's not get into it again. If you want to learn more about it, go back to the previous episodes that we have already done on it. For now, let's move ahead. So Abraham and Abimelech, we've covered the birth of Isaac. We've covered uh, and how uh, Hagar... Uh, was sent out of uh, Abraham's home uh, by his wife, Sarah. She got jealous and sent him away. That was already covered. And then the birth of Ish, sorry, uh, Ishmael almost dying while he's out in the wilderness, but then um, he's, he's saved. That was covered. So we are fast forwarding all the way to Genesis 21, verse 22, where we have the story of Abimelech enter back into the picture. So Abimelech, uh, they've been living in his land for some time now, and Abimelech decides like, okay, so uh, let's let's make a treaty while we're living here, because Abraham is a sojourner there. Uh, now, sojourner could be like a refugee when you leave somewhere to take refuge somewhere else, but sojourner in general is is not uh, um, it's not zoomed in on refugee. It's more like you are living in a land that is not your homeland. Uh, you are sojourning there, waiting there for some time. So in this case, verse 22, Abraham's still sojourning in the land where Abimelech is. And here's a story that shows up. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. All right. So let's pause right there really quick. Um, I just want to call attention to the fact here that Abimelech, 
who's a king in his area, and goes to talk to Abraham along with the commander of his army, Phicol. So you have to understand, like, just from the way that this is expressed, like, Abraham, you know, he was promised that he would be a great nation, that he would have descendants through his son. But even without having any descendants from his son yet, it's very clear, like, he's seems to be becoming a, a pretty great nation, um, or at least like he could be considered a threat to the people whom he's sojourning around, because Abimelech, this king, with his commander of his army, Phicol, like they feel like they have to go talk to Abraham. Uh, and they're like, look, <laughs> we see that God's with you in everything you do. Uh, will you deal kindly with us? Like, they're a little nervous of him, probably not just because like Abraham's like, uh, maybe a strong character, but because he seems to have uh, wealth. If you remember back to previous um, stories about Abraham, like he and all the people who live in his home, whether they're um, servants or uh, related in some way, like they've gone to war before and won the war. So like this isn't just like a family. This seems to have grown into something pretty large for the most part. And now because Abimelech has experienced um, a word of judgment from Abraham's uh, God, from Yahweh, he's like, okay, so Yahweh's with this man and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a threat. Uh, just the way that the passage is set up is, is there already to make you think like Abraham has some kind of position in the society that that he's in. You don't just bring the commander of your army along with you <laughs> unless, uh, you know, you feel like maybe you've got to kind of like set in place some some kind of like neutrality between you and, and just to make sure that, that you're covered, that nothing goes sour. But yeah, uh, Abimelech and Fikehold, they're here to try to make uh, a deal with Abraham um, to make sure that things continue to go well so long as Abraham is sojourning in their area. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant, or uh, you might use the word cut a covenant. Uh, just in the same way today, we use the expression cut a deal. Uh, cut a deal with you. Uh, back then, you would cut a covenant, and we've talked about this in our passage on covenants, so you can go back to that podcast episode too. Good news on this podcast episode, it's going to be a lot shorter than usual because we've covered a lot of these themes already, uh, but you can go back to the episode on covenants, cutting a covenant, because the idea is like you actually cut an animal, uh, and then you would walk between that animal with the person you are cutting a covenant with, almost as though to say, like, you know, the blood of this animal is on our hands, should we break this covenant? Like, this was like, uh, not just like a promise in the way that we look at promises today, you know, like a promise today, like, don't you break your promise, that's a pretty big deal. But this is like, oh, we are setting in place, if we're going to make a promise with each other, like, it's going to be this whole ceremony, it's going to be like a real thing, like, if you break this promise, what has been done to this animal should be done to you, because that's just how sacred this covenant, this cutting of this animal is, that if you break the promise, 
you know, just as this animal's been broken, so maybe you should be broken. If you break this promise, well, this animal's innocent blood is, is now on your hand. You know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of interpret the idea behind a covenant, but this is what Abraham's uh, cutting with him. He's he's making a deal with him. Um, but even before he makes that, like, you can tell, like, there's already been a little bit of hostility between them. Not a whole lot, because uh, Abraham's been living in the area, but um, while he's been living there, there's this well, which is essential to survival, right, in ancient times. It's obviously essential to survival today. You need water to live. If you don't have water, you're going to die. But uh, to find water... In ancient times, like you're not just turning on a faucet, you've got to have a well. And so that's a very essential thing to a way of life anywhere that you might find yourself, um, especially in ancient times or just in other communities around the world in third world countries today, right? That being said, uh, Abraham brings to Abimelech's attention, uh, look, yes, I'm going to deal kindly with you. We're going to strike this deal. We're going to make a covenant. But I just want to, I've got this against you right now. Your uh, your people have seized a well of water. Uh, what was he say exactly? Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So uh, Abimelech, you know, he's he's like a king, and it's just like, well, apparently, I don't know if you told anyone that news or not, but that news has never gotten to me. So don't hold that against me because I was not aware of, of, of my servants seizing this well. And that word seized, um, that, that can... Uh, come across with some connotations there of, of like take taking something with force or violence like it's not as simple as just like uh, uh, we accidentally used um, use this well if you were to go to the net Bible um, it would point out like the Hebrew verb used here means to steal to rob to take violently. Uh, this statement reflects Abraham's perspective. So at least Abraham's like, you know, you've unjustly taken something from me. So if we're going to strike up a deal, like, let's get this out there now. Things on Abraham's part, like things don't feel fair as they currently are. So again, they make the covenant. Verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Uh, another thing to point out here, really, that's really interesting to me. I love that Sarna points this out in the JPS commentary. Um, if we were to go back to when, uh, Abimelech had accidentally stolen Abraham's wife because of all of the deception that had gone on there, when Abimelech went on to make things right, uh, for the fact that, uh, he had stolen, (laughs) without knowing that he had stolen Abraham's wife. Um, When Abimelech goes back to make things right, he takes sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gives them to Abraham and then returns Sarah, his wife, to him. So that's verse 2014. Right here, it seems like Abraham is like kind of evening uh, 
the 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 grounds right so in the same way that uh, Abimelech had given him sheep oxen and servants or slaves as a gift what's very interesting here is if this is like to kind of reciprocate that by giving him sheep and oxen back because that's what he just did what he doesn't get there's an absence here to the fact that abraham doesn't give him servants or slaves and i don't know it just makes you wonder like is it possible that abraham actually had enough dignity for even his servants or slaves that uh he treated them in a better way than others might have that he didn't see them as uh, something that was to be human trafficked or just uh, uh, given around as though they weren't important, that he didn't just separate families willy-nilly to make a business transaction, um, but did he treat them kindly? And I know for, for us today, we know like even that's not far enough. Uh, slaves should be free. Um, there should be no such thing as slavery. And understand, I'm part of the Free Methodist Church our roots come out of trying to fight slavery and oppression in that way. We are free um, from uh, that kind of bondage. Uh, and part of our foundation came in trying to fight slavery in a time where people still deemed it uh, uh, acceptable. So uh, by all means, I am for freedom. But here's the picture the Bible paints um, is not necessarily one where God is okay with slavery, but rather he's he's working with the people of the time to help them. Um, uh, if they are going to practice slavery and they don't see that as a wrong, it almost, when you read the Bible, you see him trying to like push them that if they're going to practice it, that they're going to do it with uh, dignity and, and treat uh, slaves well. Uh, so, well, actually, let me just read from a part of uh, my book, A Taste of Jesus, uh, because in that, I try to explain this as a possibility of uh, of uh, progressive revelation. So progressive revelation is the idea that um, God doesn't just download into us at one time everything that is righteous and correct. Rather, he, uh, over the course of time, teaches us to... to uh, uh, grow in our understanding of of what is correct. So we today know that slavery is wrong, but people in ancient times didn't quite understand that. So uh, I'll read from A Taste of Jesus here, uh, my first book, where I kind of get into this topic of slavery and progressive revelation. Um, let me pull it up here. It just disappeared. My computer hates me. There we go. Okay. So, uh, no self-respecting American Christian today is going to claim slavery to be acceptable because God has fully revealed to us that it never was okay, even though we read of it being practiced ever since the earlier parts of the Bible. Now, God actually tried to teach us to stop practicing slavery, but we're pretty bad at listening. Slavery, like violence, was a way of life for the Hebrews. When Jeremiah passed along the prophetic word that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother, that's Jeremiah 34, 9, it must have st stuck out like a sore thumb. Slavery was a way of life. Why did they have to stop all of a sudden? The Hebrews responded well and set their slaves free, but it wasn't long before they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them back into subjection as slaves. That's Jeremiah 34, 11. 
But today, we have the full revelation that our ancestors didn't have. Slavery, in all of its forms, not just enslaving Hebrew brothers and sisters, is bad. So uh, that right there, I'm just quoting that as a a way to to try to get into Abraham's head. Uh, you know, we've seen that based on his culture, he actually did some things that today we're like, dude, that was totally immoral. But in his culture, um, may have been more acceptable. Uh, even actually, if you just go to the law <laughs> of Moses, there's lots that Moses says that condemns Abraham, uh, such as marrying your half sister. Uh, and things like that. Uh, but uh, we see that God's working with him in the place where he currently is. So all that to say, here's here's what's interesting. If again, his gift of sheep and oxen is is reciprocating the, the fact that Abimelech gave him sheep and oxen uh, some time ago, the one thing that uh, uh, that Abraham does not give to Abimelech that Abimelech gave to him, is male and female slaves. So maybe, maybe if Sarna's correct here, yes, Abraham practiced slavery as was the custom of his time, but maybe he actually treated his servants and slaves a little better than uh, the rest of the community would have. For Abimelech, it's just like, look, here's people. Maybe I've broken families to give you these people, whatever, it's part of currency. But here you have Abraham not giving slaves back to him as though like that couldn't be treated as a part of currency. We could be reading into that, or we could be seeing like just a glimpse of Abraham's uh, righteousness where though he is practicing something we know today is wrong, perhaps he was practicing it uh, more righteously than others would have. I know that all sounds a little strange or skewed, but I I hope you follow with what I'm, I'm trying to say there. Okay, so uh, we've got this exchange of goods now as a way of of doing this covenant, and we know that some of these animals, too, are going to get cut as a part of the the covenant, um, or so we would gather since they're making a covenant. Actually, I, I should say that really quick. So when you make a covenant, sometimes you cut the animals and then you walk between them, as we've already talked about, and that is the covenant. There is a possibility here that this is a different kind of covenant where Abraham is is just giving him animals rather than cutting them, because we don't technically have a spot where it says that they perform this whole cutting situation in this particular passage. So maybe Abraham's presenting the offering to be cut, or maybe it's just... Uh, um, maybe it's just an exchange of goods to make a covenant. I guess to that, we, we have to kind of um, use our own judgment there. Uh, but let's pick up in verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this will be a witness for me that I dug this well. Uh, so right there, just it shows you Abraham's uh, urgency even more so that he wants this well. Uh, it wasn't just a well in the land that he started using and considered his own. He dug it. This is his place. Uh, and so these lambs, as odd as it sounds, they become uh, <laughs> they become like an extra portion of his giving 
to um, more or less solidify the fact like this is my well. I dug this. Uh, it's, a, it's another piece of this contract that they're setting in place. Uh, Sarna perhaps says it best right here. Uh, the seven ewes are obviously not part of the traditional ceremony, but a separate transaction. By accepting them as a gift, the king publicly acknowledges Abraham's ownership of the well. So again, it's kind of like a, an above and beyond or like just a general statement. Like these seven ewe lambs represent the understanding that I dug this. This is mine. And we can tell that it's not a part of the usual um, ceremony that they're doing here because Abimelech's like, what's up with these lambs? What are you doing here? And so even he doesn't understand. But as we're going to see, there's another layer to this seven that becomes important. Seven actually just as important in this passage in several ways. Uh, Abimelech's name appears seven times in this passage. Abraham's name appears seven times in this passage. Now we have these seven ewe lambs. And if we pick up in uh, verse 31, uh, it says, Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. And Beersheba can be translated two different ways, both being applicable to this, this story. So it's kind of like a, a word in Hebrew meant to carry that double meaning. Beersheba can mean well of the seven, and it can mean well of the oath. Both things have taken place here. So it's like a double entendre. This is the place where the oath was made between Abraham and uh, Abimelech. This is a place where the, the seven you lambs were were seen. So uh, Beersheba now carries this double entendre of a name. Uh, so therefore that place was called Beersheba because there was both of them, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. All right, just a quick note on the Philistines. This kind of throws archaeologists off a little bit. Um, Abraham's time on kind of like the calendar that we've been setting up over time is like uh, the 20th century BC. Okay, so that being said, we don't really see mention of the Philistines until somewhere around the 12th century BC when they start popping up in Joshua, Judges, uh, even some texts from the time of uh, Ramses III and Egyptian texts. So these Philistines just seem uh, a little kind of early in the Bible to be appearing. And since the Philistines become like an important figure later, we're just left wondering, like, well, why are they suddenly uh, showing up right here early on? In, in Genesis. Uh, the Faith Life Study Bible would say, um, let, let me quote here, um, since Egyptian texts placed the Peleset people group, the Philistines, among the sea peoples, marauding people groups from the Aegean, it is possible that the term Peleset may have been applied generally to peoples settling on the shores of Canaan. This would mean that the Philistines of the Abraham and Isaac stories are not the same ethnicity as the Philistines of later Israelite history. So yes, these are recorded as Philistines in the Bible, but there is a possibility that these are not the same Philistines that we're going to be running into later. All right, so that being said, return to verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, 
and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. All right, so let's talk about that tamarisk tree. You know, oftentimes when Abraham has kind of like a spiritual moment, he builds an altar of sorts or somehow the land that he's in, he uses to create like a sacred space or a memory that this is where he's kind of run into God. So uh, what on earth is happening right here? First off, he's planting a tree. We haven't seen him do that before. He builds like an altar and stuff, but planting a tree, that's a little different. But he's he's planting a, a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and then he's calling on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. So what do we do with this? Uh, this, again, we've already seen that trees have kind of served like important markers uh, for running into God's presence. We saw that at the Oak of Mora, right? The Oak of the Teacher, where Yahweh just suddenly appears uh, right before they head to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we've seen that trees can kind of be like a, a sacred spot of running into uh, a divine being, in Abraham's case, running into Yahweh himself. But what is the intent here with the tamarisk tree? Uh, I think there's a few a few comments that commentaries have made that can be helpful here. Uh, the Net Bible would point out that the planting of the tamarisk tree is a sign of Abraham's intent to stay there for a long time, not a religious act. Uh, a growing tree in the Negev would be a lasting witness to God's provision of water. So you could go that route. Uh, however, we've already seen, as I just mentioned, kind of spiritual overlap with with trees sometimes. So I think we could actually consider it a, a religious thing. And a lot of commentaries would go that route. So for example, the New American Commentary would state that uh, uh, trees especially held symbolic religious significance in the ancient Near East, indicating uh, fecundity. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm saying that word right, but <laughs> it's uh, fertility, more or less. Um, uh, the representations of flora in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple symbolize the divine giver of fertility. Uh, Abraham's gesture of planting the tree expressed his devotion and recognition of God as a source of his prosperity. So New American Commentary would take it uh, that route because now he's in the land of the Philistines and he's struck a deal uh, for a well. So there's prosperity going on here. So Abraham's kind of like giving God kind of like this sacred tree altar of sorts as a reminder to the um, uh fertile land that that he's been given or the prosperity that he's been given. Uh, Sarna would say that we are not told why Abraham planted the tree. It may have served to memorize the uh, mem memorialize the pact. More likely, it is linked to the act of worship. There's no suggestion that the place has any prior sanctity. The patriarch does not make use of existing cultic objects. And then finally, um, let's just take a look at uh, uh, Winham in the World Biblical Commentary, who says, uh, kind of even more along the religious lines that we we're already talking about, on other occasions, Abraham, Abraham stayed near oaks. Here he plants a tamarisk, a stately tree that can reach nearly 30 feet in height. 
They are common throughout the Negeb, where they are planted by the desert Bedouin for their shade and their soft branches, which the flocks eat. Uh, the precise significance of the act is unclear. The Old Testament sees trees, especially evergreens, as symbolic of the life and blessing of God, as we just saw. Uh, on other occasions, Abraham built an altar and presumably offered sacrifice to express his devotion to God. Sarna argues that tree planting is analogous to altar building and marked the foundation of the great shrine of Beersheba. Such acts like this one followed God's promising the land, and Abraham usually responded by calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, so that we do see him do that. He responds by calling on the name of the Lord uh, in just a moment here. Um, and that's actually important too. So now that we've looked at some of the significance behind this tamarisk tree, uh, one of the things that commentaries kind of get divided on here is that Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. But if you caught his actual um, statement here, it says that uh, uh, he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Calls on the name of Yahweh, comma, the everlasting God. Now, for us in English, that's not complicated at all. Ah, yes, God is everlasting. Uh, uh, but in Hebrew, it, it kind of divides some commentators because the way that it would look like is like he called on Yahweh, uh, he called on El Olam. So uh, in Hebrew there, you know, when you have uh, an expression like El Olam, what you'd actually be looking at is is a name that could be interpreted as like another deity. Oh, so he called on the name of Yahweh, and then it's trying to liken him to another deity named El Olam. So what you are left with is what is the way in which you're going to interpret this is is the bible trying to liken yahweh to another god or is the bible trying to give god a a uh, adjective ah he's the everlasting god it's an epithet if you will uh the ddd um kind of sorry that's the dictionary of deities and demons in the bible it's a really well-written dictionary that's helpful, especially on issues like this. Um, but uh, often the DDD's entry on this seems to come to the conclusion like it's better to look at this as an epithet. So it says, since Alam is not attested as an independent deity, it still remains very likely that in this passage, Olam is used as an epithet, irrespective of whether L is construed in appellative or a divine name. In that case, El Olam should be rendered as El, God, the eternal, everlasting, or ancient one. So yeah, I think the, the fair point made there is just the beginning of that uh, quote, since Olam is not attested as an independent deity, um, then of course it makes sense like you're not praising uh, another God that is... Um, uh, has the name El Olam. Rather, it's just uh, in Hebrew, it should be translated as an adjective to God. And this is where, for me, this whole thing starts to come together. Here, Abraham makes, uh, plants a tree, and then praises Yahweh, the everlasting God. 
Why, why are we suddenly on this idea of the everlasting God? All we did was just cut a covenant with Abimelech. Why would we come to this point that suddenly God is everlasting? Why would we plant a tree in memory of this? What, what's going on here? And this, I think, is uh, where Winham really brings this whole passage together. He says, By granting Abraham rights to a well, Abimelech had made it possible for Abraham to live there permanently and had acknowledged his legal right to water. In other words, after so many delays, the promises of land and descendants at last seem on their way to fulfillment. So I think I think that whole thing really brings us together. Here Abraham is in this land. He's got descendants that uh, he's finally got his his real son from his wife, Sarah, sorry, real son, you know what I mean. He's got his, uh, the son that God promised him that he would have to fulfill a covenant that God made with him. And now he's in this land that one day he is told that he's going to take. Like for Abraham, it seems like everything's finally coming together. This, this promise that's finally coming true. And when he's starting to enter his hundreds, it's all starting to come together. It seemed like a joke. His son was named He Laughs, almost as though he's a prophetic joke. Uh, everything just never thought like it was going to come together. And now here we are in his very old age, around the time where you think that he's going to to start to pass away. And he's truly seeing that God is this everlasting God who made this everlasting promise that one day he would bless the nations and have children that you could not count. All of it seemed ridiculous, but here finally, all the signs are are starting to, to come together. Now, that being said, next week, it's all going to seem like he's going to lose everything. So he's at the peak of this. Everything's come together. And next week, we get into a story where he is told to sacrifice his son. And that is a story that maybe makes him think that everything's about to turn around. And we are going to take a deeper look at that next time here on the Midweek Podcast.